Why don't you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful that we get together on Christmas Eve morning or afternoon. God, we understand, we realize that every single one of us carry things into this room today. Whether or not we're carrying this room a joy of a life that was born of a new child this year or a family member, or we carry into this room a sorrow of a life that was lost. God, each of us carry into this room whatever particular burdens or joys that we have, and I'm praying, Lord Jesus, that you would give us a glimpse of the reality of Christmas to help us to recenter our lives, even just for a moment, on the truth, the truth that can reinterpret all of our situations to give, to give color, to give hope to our reality. Father, I pray that you would give us exactly what we need this morning to, to walk out of this room refreshed, to worship you, to, to see you for who you really are. Lord, we need you to do that. We need your spirit to, to do far more than what we could ever ask or imagine right now. And we're asking that you would do that boldly and humbly in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, you guys go ahead and take a seat and Merry Christmas as we round out this marathon of a day. There are people that have been here since eight o'clock this morning getting ready for you. On top of that, the countless hours, by the way, things you would not know is our production team and our worship team. We're here on Thursday till almost midnight getting ready for you. So thank you to those guys who are so talented. Thank you for all the servant leaders. Yeah. Hey, a special thank you to the people who call City Church your home gathered today and those of you who have stopped in for the first time. We are looking at the story of Christmas in the most unexpected place. What we've been doing over the last several weeks is looking at the story of Christmas through the Gospel of John. If you're not new to Christianity, the Gospel of John is different than the other three Gospels that they would call the synoptic Gospels, which means the same. Um, Matthew and Luke's Gospels record Jesus' birth. John does not. 90% of the information in the Gospel of John is different than every other book. However, what I want to show you today is if you look deeper into the details, what you will see is the Christmas story everywhere. Now, with that in mind, let me, let me tell you the three greatest Christmas movies of all time. Now, this is not a debate. It's not my opinion, contrary to some of the older people on our staff, because they're wrong. This is true. It is 100% accurate, and there's no argument. Number one, best Christmas movie of all time is Elf. Elf, right? There's no better scene in all Christmas movies than when he looks at the dude and he says, you smell like beef and cheese. Like it is, he sits on the throne of lies. It is the most quotable movie of all time. Number two, and it's a close second, is Die Hard. Die Hard. Contrary to my wife's beliefs that tells me that I just slipped that in there because I'm a man and I have to have a manly movie. No, it is absolutely a Christmas movie. It is one for the ages and it's one that you should watch. And for you sentimental people, number three is Miracle on 34th Street. Fantastic movie. Like, I still cry when she hands the dollar bill to the judge in circles in God We Trust. I'm talking about the new one. The old, nobody, movies before 1970, we don't watch those, so the new one. And for you guys, so I can offend everybody in the room, the worst Christmas movie of all time, White Christmas. My wife gets so mad when I say that. Uh, hey, last night, last night we watched a, a Christmas movie like we do every Christmas. Us, me and my four kids and my wife, we got down on the couch. We, we laid down together and we watched a Christmas movie, one that we had never seen before. Uh, and I'd actually recommend it. It was really great. It's called A Boy Named Christmas. 
Uh, it was so profound that I got up in the middle of the movie, walked over to the table, and rewrote the intro to my Christmas sermon because in the movie, the elf says something to little Saint Nick. Now, you got a uh, spoiler alert. Um, that little Saint Nick ends up becoming Father Christmas, and in that time, his dad actually dies on the way for him to get an elf back to be rescued, all right? And then this elf looks at the boy, and she says something so profound that I had to write it down. She says, you know, the only thing in life that isn't complicated is the truth. Let that sink in for just a moment. The only thing in life that isn't complicated is the truth. You know, the thing about Christmas, the Christmas story, it's a miraculous story, and yet it's a true story. It's the thing that makes the complicated things of life true again. You know, in this world where everything seems to be going awry, where there's wars and there's, there's crazy stuff happening, where the economy seems to be falling apart, I, my goodness, I went to go buy cr- breakfast for Christmas yesterday, and it was like $70, and I bought milk and cereal. Like, things just seem to be out of control, and yet what brings shape and color to the human experience is this miracle called Christmas. It's why we all love it. It's why, for all of us, we have to sit back for just a second and just reignite our imagination for just a moment. G.K. Chesterton, the old British philosopher, he said, the problem in most of our lives is that we've grown up far too much to think about the miraculous, and we think it's just normal. It says when you go outside and you see the sky is blue and the grass is green and chickens have eggs, well, the problem with you is you think that's normal. The beauty of an amazing creative God decided one day to speak and the sky became blue. Some of us need to reimagine and reignite in our minds that the miraculous was actually God at work. I'm a little bit of a nerd, so I, I like to look at scientific details, and one of, the, one of the theories out there that I love is called Occam's Razor. If you've ever heard of it, here's what it says. The simplest explanation tends to be the best explanation. Hey, if you look at science, that, that the simplest explanation tends to be the best explanation. Maybe, maybe, maybe the reason why we love the ideas of miracles so much, maybe the reason why we long for them so much is because the simplest explanation is We need miracles. They are supposed to be that way. Maybe the reason why things like death and sorrow, as as they seem so normal to the human experience, maybe the reason why you never come to terms or grips with it, even though it's inevitable, is because it was never supposed to be that way. See, death and sorrow, hurry, hurt, and worry, they're not normal at all. They're not normal at all. We weren't supposed to be sad. J.R.R. Tolkien said one day God's going to make all the sad things become untrue because they were never supposed to be that way. You weren't supposed to hurt. You weren't supposed to experience these things, and that's the reason why you long for something so much more. You long for something greater because it was hardwired into the fabric of who you are. One day, the Christmas miracle isn't going to be so miraculous at all. It's actually going to be normal because that's the way it was always supposed to be. So today, today I want to show you the Christmas story in the most unexpected place. I want to show it to you in John chapter 2, which is Jesus' first miracle. Here's what it says. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, now by the way, if I ever started a sentence like that, my mama would have slapped me in the face. A lot of, a lot of Bibles try to soften that. Uh, it's really that harsh. If you look at the language, it really is. Woman, what does this have to do with me? And I'm going to show you why it's important. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
You might be thinking, what the heck does this have to do with Christmas? I'm going to show you. Verse 11 actually brings shape to the whole narrative. Listen to what he says. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. You see, the Bible, the Bible is a sign pointing to a greater reality. Every single story, including Christmas, is a story that points to a greater reality. And every sign, every miracle, there's two essential things that Jesus wants. Number one, well, he wants you to see his glory. Everything in the Christmas story is there to help you see the glory of God. It manifests his glory so that, number two, you can believe. That is the point. That is the point. Now, here's what's going on. Jesus, if you need a little background, was just baptized by John the Baptist. If you go back to chapter one, the end, you'll see that he calls the first disciples. One of the important things, he says he saw them and he called them, and then they show up at a wedding, which is not an accident at all. Do you realize that the very first miracle that Jesus ever performs is at a wedding? The very first scene in the entire Bible is a wedding between Adam and Eve, and the very last scene in the Bible is a wedding where God was going to unite you back to himself. There is a story arc that is bookended by weddings so that, jo- so that Jesus can show you that the entire point of Christmas is that God can make a way for you to be back with him again forever. The whole point of the Bible is that God and man would live together, and everything is culminating in this point. They actually call it, if you want to be, again, a little nerdy, a chiastic structure. Everything in the Bible is circling to this point. The picture of a wedding ceremony. The picture of a wedding is about God building his kingdom and bringing his people back together, and ultimately, that's what the Christmas story is all about. It's not about a baby in a manger. It's about a God who came down. In the first chapter of John's gospel, which we went over the last few weeks, John shows it to you in the most poetic and beautiful way. He says, in the beginning, meaning before anything, in the beginning was the word. He'll go on to tell you that that word's name is Jesus, who came and dwelt among us. That, that, that Greek word for dwell, it literally means to tabernacle or to temple among us. I told you this last week. Every single religion on the planet needs a meeting place between God and man. You are no different. The only difference is your place isn't a building, it's a person. He dwelt among us, the one who created the starry nights, the one who hung the stars in the sky, the one who breathed life into you. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He came down to live among you. See, you gotta understand that this word that was in the beginning, he came, but he didn't come in the most expected way. He didn't come as a a king that ruled the, the universe. He came, he came as a baby, in a manger. He didn't come as the most influential man on the planet. He wasn't Time Magazine's man of the year. As a matter of fact, what would end up happening is he would live 33 years in obscurity, die with 11 friends, never publish a book, never have a platform, and yet he would become the most influential human being to ever live. He came in the most vulnerable way, a baby. If you've ever held a baby, they're helpless. I don't even know how the human race survived, if I'm honest with you. We, like, the most helpless little creatures completely dependent on somebody else. The king of the universe came lower than low so that he could lift up every single person. He came to being born in obscurity into a little town in Palestine to a peasant family. Y'all, why is that important? It's important because if you were writing this story, if you wanted to create a mythical creature, you would never write it like this. Your king would never be like this. You can't make this stuff up. It's so radical that the only logical explanation is that it's real. See, there's a story arc to your redemption. 
and it crosses right over the Christmas story. The first miracle is a picture of the ultimate miracle, and it gives meaning to why Christmas matters. Check it out. On the third day, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana and Galilee. On the third day, on the third day, every detail matters. What significant historical event happened on the third day? The resurrection. Wrap your minds around this. Jesus is pointing to a greater reality because every single word that you're going to read is going to tell you a story that can change your life. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. On the first day, he entered into destruction in order to take on what you and I deserve so that on the third day, he could defeat sin, death, Satan, and the grave. That's what the Christmas story is all about. And look at this. It's a celebration. If it's all a picture, what he wants to show you is that on the third day, there's a wedding. (laughs) You see the sequence? On the third day, there's a celebration. The first miracle is a picture of your future. God preparing to throw a party for you. I need you to wrap your minds around this. The very first miracle is a picture of what all miracles are pointing to. Jesus stepping off of his throne in heaven. Literally the God-man putting on flesh. Becoming a real human being so that he could pursue you, rescue you, and redeem you. Remember, every detail matters. Every detail matters. If you go back to the very last verse in chapter 1, it actually frames the entire story for you. Here's what John tells you in verse 51. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, when he says that, he's trying to emphasize something. I say to you, you will see heaven opened. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man over and over and over. Matter of fact, on January 8th, we're going to start a sermon series on the book of Daniel where that saying comes from. He's the Son of Man. And what does he say? I'm telling you, here's what Christmas is all about. It actually is a quote from Jacob's Ladder in the book of Genesis where he says that the heavens are going to be open. Watch this. He's like, I'm going to make a way to bring that which was broken back together. Heaven and earth together again because of me. You will be able to come up because I came down. The picture is that Jesus is making a way for heaven to be open and for you to experience eternity. And it's going to be a celebration. Not only any kind of a party, but a wedding party. Look what he says. On the third day, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. I love weddings. I've been to a lot of weddings, maybe more than most people because I've officiated a lot of weddings. And you know what I love most about weddings? I love the pursuit. Every time I do a wedding, I ask the bride and groom to write me a one-page letter of how they met. I take those two letters and I I form the homily out of it. Uh, And I love the pursuit and the stories that happen in weddings. For some of you guys, you may not know this, but there was a time when like you actually had to go up to a lady and shoot your shot, right? You had to be rejected. Now you just like an app and you swipe and I'm like, dude, I'm so glad that didn't exist. But you actually had to go up. So every now and then a blind squirrel finds a nut. A girl says yes, you start dating. The dating process goes on and you fall in love. And if you do it the right way, you go and ask the girl's dad for a hand in marriage. Then you show up at a church, you covenant your lives together and you say, I do. I, I can still remember July 30th, 2011, whenever I'm standing in that church and I'm down here and the doors open and the most beautiful woman I've ever seen, radiating like a glorious angel with this white dress, starts walking down the aisle to me. 
And I look at her, and all I can think is, I wonder when she's going to realize that she could have done better and turn around and run away. She didn't. She walked down that aisle. She came to me. We stood on that altar. One of my best friends, Mark, looked at both of us, said a bunch of vowels, and he says, I now pronounce to you for the very first time, Mr. and Mrs. William Lowe. We walked out of that church. People cheered, and we partied like it was 1999. Our families came together. It was amazing. And y'all, 12, almost 12 years later, almost 12 years later, we have four kids, and she still hasn't figured out that I outpunted my coverage. Y'all, weddings, they are simply the most amazingly beautiful thing because they're a picture of something even more beautiful. They're a picture of Jesus coming to redeem you as, as the doors open and you're walking to him. Listen to me, he came to pursue you. He stepped off of his throne. He didn't just take an app and swipe right. He sacrificed everything to enter into a relationship with you. The way the Bible says it, he's committed himself to you. He even went to your heavenly father to tell him that he wants to have your hand in marriage and to bring you two together again. He committed himself to you by dying in your place, and he says he's even up in heaven right now preparing a way for you. The book of Revelation calls him the bridegroom coming back to take his bride. Y'all, the first miracle is at a wedding, and that's not on accident because the entire Bible is about a wedding that Jesus wants to bring you into. See, the reason that some of you feel so unfulfilled, the reason why you feel empty and the reason why you think, okay, even if I pursue all of this stuff, there's emptiness at the other end of it is because you're separated from the one that you long for, the one you're created for. And as long as you're separated from Jesus, you will always feel that way. Y'all, the reason why every single person in this room knows that there's more to life than just right here and right now is because there is. C.S. Lewis, if I find in myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is I was made for another world. The reason why you know the difference between right and wrong is not because you're just a clump of cells that uh, evolved over time to make the human experience. No, no, it's because it's hardwired into who you are. The reason why every single one of us will die and it's not normal and it's not okay is because it was never meant to be. You see, if death were a natural part of the human experience, it wouldn't matter, but it's not, life is. And the reason why you want so much more than that is because you were made for so much more than that. Christmas is about Jesus coming to fix the mess of this world, about him doing the miraculous so that you and I could stand in his presence forever. Like John Newton, the famous hymn writer who wrote Amazing Grace said, says, if I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet some that I had not thought I would see. Second, to miss some that I thought I might meet there. And third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. See, Christmas Christmas, it's about you seeing yourself properly and understanding the greatest miracle is that the God-man came down to bring you up. Now this, verse three. When the, water, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now for you Baptists in the room, you can translate that into grape juice. And for the rest of you, that's legitimate wine. But I want to I disappoint you for a second. That has absolutely nothing to do with alcohol. Nothing to do with wine. Joy was actually symbolic in the Bible of, I'm sorry, wine was symbolic in the Bible of joy. It symbolized something greater. It symbolized this feast that Jesus wanted to give with you where he would show you the greatest joy in life. Let me show you a couple examples. Psalm 104.15, wine gladdens the heart of men. 
Isaiah 55, 1, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy, eat, and drink. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Judges 9, 13, shall I leave the wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Even the rabbis would say it like this, without wine, there is no joy. Now, with that in mind, think about the embarrassment of throwing a wedding feast for your, your daughter and you run out of wine. Like I, I have four kids. I have two girls and two boys. And uh, my two older girls, I, I've kind of come to the inevitable fact that they'll probably get married one day. Like I thought they'd just become nuns. But you know what? I, I got to get that out of my mind, right? But I hold on to hope that culture is so jacked up that one day I won't even have to pay for their weddings because the women won't have to do that anymore. But imagine, imagine, just imagine that, imagine that we throw this, throw this amazing wedding, all of our families together, you know, because they don't come together often, and we run out of wine, or we run out of food, or run out of whatever. It would be, it would be absolutely embarrassing. That, that Mary was feeling in this moment a mortification, she, and rightfully so. Mary's thinking, the wine is gone. So what does she do? She does the only thing that any of us would ever do. She goes to Jesus because, well, she knows who he is. She knows, the mo- I'm the mother of Jesus. I remember the miraculous conception done by the Holy Spirit, and I remember this moment. Like, she knows who he is, so she goes to Jesus. But listen to what he says. Woman, what does this have to do with me? It's kind of weird, right? She's like, Jesus, I need you to fix the problem. Like we're at a wedding and, and, and everything's going wrong and I need you to do it. And he totally disregards her request. Because watch this. Watch this. Because he has something greater in store for her. See, if you get anything, if you get anything out of this Christmas message, here's what I want you to get. Jesus cares so deeply for you that he has something greater in store for you than you could ever imagine. And sometimes we can't see, what, we can't see the horizon past the thing that's right in front of us. For her, she has these temporal problems, and Jesus looks at her and he says, no, what you don't understand is I have something even more incredible in store for you. Here's the picture. The human experience without Jesus is like a party without wine. Maybe you've come in here on this Christmas and you know that there's something missing. Like you're just going through the motions, and you know it. You know that there's something missing. It's like the party of life is starting to lose its taste, but you don't know where to go. And you're continually dissatisfied. Y'all, the human experience is that every single one of us will eventually run out of wine, if you will. That life is going to disappoint. And my question for you is when that day comes, what are you going to do? What are you going to do whenever you've experienced all that life has to offer and you realize that it's not as satisfying as you thought it was? Christmas. It's about Jesus filling your life with a joy that can never run out at the expense of of things that overpromise and underdeliver all the time. Because apart from Jesus, let me just tell you, like the famous philosopher Blaise Pascal said, you will always have this God-sized hole in your heart. Or like St. Augustine said, your hearts will be restless until they find their rest in you. You can try to fill it with every exhilarating thing in the world. You can try to fill it with experiences and go out and travel the world and do all the different stuff. You can try to fill it with as much money until you get enough. The only problem is at some point, enough is not going to be enough because you're going to need more. Or for some of you, you never think you're going to be pretty enough. I got bad news for you. If you have the joy and the privilege of getting older, it doesn't get any better. 
Y'all, you, you can try to be as successful as you want to be. And the problem is, is that technology at some point is going to pass you by and some young hotshot's going to take your job or Elon Musk is just going to create a robot to do it for you. See, the, the real reason that all of us are here is because the wine of life will run out unless you find it in something better. Isn't it interesting, though? Mary, she only gives one exhortation in the entire Bible, only one instruction. Listen to what she says. Do whatever he tells you. This is coming from a woman who has experienced it. She remembers the Christmas story, that God had come down, not as a king, but as a helpless baby. She ent- he entered into the lowest of lows so that he could come and take you out of the depths of your own despair. This is a woman who remembered the miracle of Christmas, and she doesn't know what to do. And she honestly doesn't know what Jesus is going to do, but she expects a miracle. I love this. Do whatever he tells you to do because what I know about him will redefine everything about your life. Let me just ask you, do you have the faith to expect the unexpected? Even whenever you don't understand what's next over the horizon. When you're sitting in the middle, when you're sitting in the middle, do you know who he is so that whenever the moment comes, you can say, I don't know what you're gonna do, Jesus, but I will do whatever you tell me to do. See, Christmas is there to give you hope. It's there to give you hope in the middle. Whenever none of it seems to make sense, whenever the wine runs out and you need hope, it's there. Now listen to what he says. He says, my hour has not yet come. Nine times in the book of John, this this word hour appears, and every single time it refers to Jesus' death. Here's what he's saying. It's so important. He looks up at his mom. He says, woman, I didn't come to fix your temporal problems. I came to fix the world. He's reframing this. He's like, I didn't come to be your genie in the bottle. I came to fix the world. Watch this. Sometimes, sometimes Jesus looks past what's right in front of you. Sometimes he looks past your immediate problems because he wants to fix your eternal problems. I need you to see this. You you get this, right? Sometimes God sees beyond the horizon. He sees things that you can't see, and sometimes he doesn't fix what's right in front of you because he realizes that the things are right in front of you will never satisfy you. Like, Like the great theologian Garth Brooks said, I thank God for unanswered prayers. Can you imagine? Think about it. If God answered every single prayer that you ever prayed, where you would be right now, you'd probably be married to somebody you don't want to be married to. You'd have a different life, and everything would be so messed up. Theologians will tell you that Jesus answers every prayer you would have prayed if you knew what he knew. What if God's looking at you in your, in your temporal issues that are sitting right in front of you? He's like, listen, I know you don't understand. I know it doesn't make sense. But I promise you, if you knew what I knew, if you knew what I knew, if you knew the arc of history, I'm not answering that prayer because I want to answer a bigger one. I might not be doing what you think because I'm actually doing something so much greater. Now, here's what's beautiful about this whole story, though. Sometimes God does answer your immediate prayer because he's just a good father that wants to bring joy to your life. That's what he does for Mary. Check it out, verse six. Now, there were six stone waters, water jars, there for the Jewish rite of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Now, that's a lot of water. If you do the math, it's about 180 gallons of water, and it's not an accident 
I told you everything in this story, the details matter. Every single thing in this story is on purpose. Jesus isn't looking, he's not like, oh, there's some water, go, go grab that. No, he actually tells you they're for the Jewish rites of purification. What Jesus is doing in this moment is he's taking a symbol. The symbol of the Jewish rites of purification were a symbol of the law. It was a symbol of the old religion, the way that you had to live your life. Basically, what would end up happening is in order to come clean before God, in order to enter into his presence, they would have to wash the outside of their dirtiness, if you will, to come in. If you translated this to 2022, it, you can almost say it's like the Southern gospel, like Christianity, right? Where we have to do a bunch of good things in order for God. And if we tip the scales, I'm more good than bad. I told you this last week. Some of you are like, I've only ever done one bad thing. Criminals go to jail for doing one bad thing. Right? The, the idea here that Jesus wants you to know is he's taking away the old religion to clean yourself up, and he wants to replace it with so much, something better. Christmas is about Jesus replacing your old self with something so much better. Because religion will tell you all day long, clean yourself up. Do good, do better, and maybe God will accept you. Y'all, the first miracle is that Jesus emptied out those jars so that he could put something new in them. He put the gospel inside them. The gospel says that Jesus poured himself out so that he could make a way for you. If you're connecting the dots, the Last Supper, what does he say? This is the cup of my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' first miracle was him emptying out himself that he can make a way for you to come in. See, religion tells you clean yourself up. The gospel says you are already clean because Jesus has already given up his life for you. The gospel is that Jesus lived your perfect life died your death so that he could pour himself out so that you could enter in. He wants to fill you up with a new way. He wants to give you a wine, a joy that will never run out. And he's telling you that if you want the best, it's not found in yourself, it is found in him. Jesus is saying that he is the one that brings joy to life because you were made for him. Listen to me. If you fall into this trap of religion, one of two things will end up inevitably happening to you. You will either end up in despair because at some point you can fool all of us, but you know deep down that you will never be as good as you think you are. You know that this is the greatest fear in every man's life is that one day you will find out that they are a fraud. They might look good on the outside, but they are so insecure on the inside because they know that they don't measure up to the reality of what they think they should. You will either fall into despair or you'll become the worst kind of arrogant that thinks that you are better than everybody else so you will look down on them. And I'm just telling you, it is impossible to look up to God when you are always looking down on others. The gospel is that you can be filled with a greater joy and a greater identity that is found in the fact that Jesus lived your perfect life in you and he fully accepts you based on his righteousness, not yours. The way we say it around here all the time is this. There's nothing there's nothing you've ever done to make God love you any more and there's nothing you could ever do to make God love you any less because it's not dependent upon what you do. It's dependent upon what he did. On the cross, on that very first Christmas tree where he hung himself on it, you know what he said? He said, it is finished, not try harder. Verse seven. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. Can I point out how much faith these servants must have had? 180 gallons of water. I heard this week that they could have equivalent to about 850 bottles of wine that that would have filled up. 
180 gallons of water. They had to take a step of faith. Listen, Jesus, I believe, is ready to do a miracle in most of our lives, and sometimes I wonder if we are ready to receive it. I wonder sometimes if we're willing to look foolish enough for God to do it. Think about the foolishness of these servants. They've got to go and grab these jars of water, massive jars. The wine has run out. Everybody is up in a panic thinking, what do we do? And Jesus is looking over at dirty dog water. Y'all, sometimes I wonder if you are willing to look foolish enough for God to do a miracle in your life. And let me just tell you, in the culture that we live in, if you're going to follow Jesus, people are going to think you're foolish. Are you willing to? Honestly, I wonder if the old wine has run out enough in our lives for God to do something in our lives that is crazy and miraculous. Jesus can't fill jars until they're empty. You get that, right? He's got so much that he wants to do in our lives, and sometimes our jars are half full with our own independence. And he's looking at you saying, I want to do so much more. Edmund Clowney, in a time of joy, Jesus tasted a little bit of sorrow so that in our time of sadness, we could taste a little bit of joy. The wine of life in most of our lives is running out, but he wants to offer you so much better of a life. So what do they do? He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. (laughs) Jesus tells these servants, take that dirty purification water, draw some out. By the way, the wine hasn't come yet. Draw some out and go take it to the master of the feast. Think about that. Think about how nuts that statement is. It would be like me taking a bowl of dirty dog water and going and serving it to somebody to drink. Here's the point. God's miracles are transformed in us as we take a step of faith. I need you to understand this. Some of you are so passively waiting on God to move, and that's just not how it works. There's, there's, a, there's a sense in which God unleashes his miracles as you take steps of faith. Think about the feeding of the 5,000 if you're not new to Christianity. He takes a little boy's lunchbox, and, you know, the fish and the loaves, and he tells thousands of people to sit down. Those fish and loaves don't become multiplied until the disciples take them and start passing them out. The same thing is true of this. God has miracles that he wants to do in a lot of our lives, and yet they're transformed miraculously as we take steps towards him. Y'all, if the Christmas story is true, if Jesus really did enter in, and he did, I showed you that a couple weeks ago, historically, it is hard to disprove the validity of the Bible. Jesus entered into real history. It was a real person 2,000 years ago that you can trace back. If he really did enter in, if he really did live your life in your place, if he really did raise from the dead three days later, and he walked out, what he has for you is better than anything this world has to offer, and all you have to do is take a step toward him to receive it. All you have to do is what the servants did. See what they did? Most profound thing. So they took it. So they took it. They didn't ask questions. They didn't care. They took the water and they walked over. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, we don't have to wait to get to heaven to get to light. Some of you are waiting on a miracle and Jesus is sitting here saying, don't you understand that I've already done the greatest miracle of all. All you have to do is come to me. 2,000 years ago, I condescended my own creation. I put on human flesh and I came down for you. All you have to do is walk towards me. All you have to do is take a step towards me. And honestly, it's not even that big of a step 
because the greatest chasm was between heaven and earth. In verse 51, he tells you, I came to make a way for heaven and earth to be connected again, to turn the old wine into something new. All you have to do is trust me and watch what happens. I will do far more abundantly, as Paul says, anything than you could ever ask or imagine. Verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said, everyone serves the good Cabernet first. And when the people are drunk, they bring out the box wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Don't miss what he's saying. It's a metaphor for life. Everyone will tell you to experience all the world has to offer, exhaust all the resources, do everything that you would ever want until it runs out. And Jesus is telling you today, you don't have to do that. I wish somebody would have told me a long time ago that wisdom, wisdom is not learning from your own mistakes. Wisdom is learning from other people's mistakes so you don't have to make them. Jesus is telling you, I have come to give you something better. You don't have to experience all the world has to offer first. All you have to do is come to me and I will give you something far greater than this world could ever offer. By the way, the master of the feasts, this guy was like the the MC of the party. He was the DJ. His job was to make sure that everything happened. Remember verse 11 will tell you that these signs point to something greater, which means that everything is a metaphor for something greater. It's the only time in the New Testament that this Greek word master of the feast happens And it's because Jesus wants you to see that he's the real master of the feast. He's really the one who comes to make a way for you to receive a better meal, to sit down at the table and to dine with him. You know, this is so incredibly important. Jesus is saying, I am the Lord of the feast. And if you will come and follow me, you will receive something better than life could ever give you. I'm telling you, I wish I could could get this into your minds. Walking with Jesus only gets better. Sometimes I look at some of the older sages in my life and the way that they approach their end of life, the way they approach retirement with joy, and I think, you have something that we all need. Listen, the world will tell you. I I think I've experienced most things that the world will tell you you'd ever want to experience. I grew up, I played Division I quarterback, I partied hard, I had everything that this world would ever tell you would ever want, played in front of thousands upon thousands of people, was on TV, did all this stuff, and let me just tell you, I was so empty and depressed. And every single time that I would walk through this cycle, I was left more unfulfilled over and over and over and over again. And I wish somebody would have told me, you don't have to do that. Walking with Jesus now for the last 15 years, I can tell you I'm happier today than I've ever been happy in my entire life. I've been married for almost 12 years. I have four kids, and I will tell you that is the best experience ever, and I want that for you too. I tell my kids all the time, like, they have the most incredibly miraculous testimony ever. You know, my testimony is that I was one of 13 kids, not a joke. I have one full biological brother. My dad was married three times. My mom's been married several times. My mom was addicted to meth. My dad was um, the most abusive man you'll ever meet. I grew up in this horrible situation, and it is only by the grace of God that I stand here today. And look, that's a cool story. 
The most miraculous story is the one that I hope my kids get to share. Somebody asked them one day, how'd you come to faith? They said, you know, I had a good daddy. He loved me and he loved Jesus. I had a good mommy who loved me and they loved Jesus and they loved each other. And the only thing I've ever known is Jesus. Y'all, I hope that my kids have the most boring testimony ever because that's a miraculous testimony. And let me just tell you, Jesus wants to offer you that. He wants to offer you a story, and it might not be yours. It wasn't mine, but I'll be darned if my, it's not my kids. I, I, I tell people all the time, I hope that one day somebody's doing some Ancestry.com, and they point back to me, and they're like, that. That was the guy who changed the trajectory of the Lowe family for generations to come. Not because I did anything, but because Jesus did it. And he went from this to this. And those kids and those kids and those kids have walked with Jesus and have lived a different kind of a life because of that guy. Y'all, Jesus is telling you that there is something far greater out there. The greatest miracle of all is that Christmas made a way for you to experience joy without ever having to go back. See, culture tells you, culture tells you, you got to experience all that the world has to offer now. YOLO, you only live once, right? have a bucket list. You know, that's such a nearsighted view of eternity because if you get the Bible, what you get is that heaven is coming down, as Revelation 21 says, and you will get to experience all that this world has to offer for all of eternity without sin. You don't have to do it now. People, I hear it all the time. I'm going to wait till I have kids because I want to go travel the world. I'm just telling you, I've been to like 30-something different countries, and I have four kids, and I'll take my four kids all day, every day over that, and I praise God that we had kids young because they are the greatest experience of my life. You can travel all you want, but you are missing out on something that, that you can never have if you're chasing after stuff to find fulfillment. The wine of life is going to run out. And at some point, if you keep pursuing it, what you will do is you'll get to the end of yourself and you'll be like what Jim Carrey said. I hope everybody, he says, could get rich and famous and will have everything that they could have ever dreamed of so that they will know it's not the answer. Or Bill Gates. Being wealthy makes my life much more comfortable but not more fulfilling. Tom Brady gets on 60 Minutes after winning like umpteen Super Bowl. The man's the only person I've ever seen that gets better looking with age. And he says, there's gotta be more to life than this. There is. There is something more to life than this. Jesus is saying, what I have to offer you is far better than anything that this world could ever offer you. Walking with Jesus is the new wine that makes your life better. He is the Lord of the feast. One last important detail. If you grab your Bible, if you're a Bible person, you look, what you'll see is the first scene here in John chapter 2 is Jesus at a wedding. The very next scene is Jesus walking into the temple on the Passover and cleansing the temple. Those are two massively important scenes because the Bible will tell you that Jesus is both the Lamb of God that was slain and the Lion of Judah that conquers the world. The Passover was the most significant event in Israel's history. It was the moment where God would come to all people. By the way, nobody was exempt from this. You never hear that taught in the book of Exodus. But the angel of death was coming to all people except those who put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. See, the reality is is that it's a picture of something that's happening in your life too. At some point, the wine is going to run out and Jesus is telling you that I am the lamb of God that was slain so that I can pass over you and give you new life. I am not only the lion of Judah who conquered the world, but I am the way in which it was conquered, and I am the temple that you can meet with God through. I am the Passover lamb that allows you to have shape to your experience. Think about it. Think about it. The night before Jesus died, he gathers with his friends in an upper room. What does he do? He grabs a glass of wine, and he says, this is my blood 
of the new covenant poured out for you. See the wine? It's a picture of something greater. It's a picture of Jesus pouring himself out so that he could fill you up. He's doing that so that you can have life with him. He wants to bring clarity to your identity. You see, the entire miracle is a means to an end. And the end is to show you that God wants to make a way. And Christmas, Christmas is the way that he made a way. God would enter in. He would put on flesh so that you could feast at the table of joy forever. And he invites you to that table. Y'all, because of Christmas, you can have new life. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly or joyfully. The thief is gonna tell you, go experience everything you've ever wanted, but I'm just telling you, it's only there to steal, kill, and destroy your life. And Jesus has something so much better for you. Because Jesus entered into humanity, because he was born into obscurity, he can make a way for you to have new life. Every single detail matters. Every detail of life matters. Now, this story is all about Jesus. But I think you can extrapolate two things that we should do in response. Here's the first one. I think you should take a step of faith towards Jesus. See, at some point, you gotta ask yourself the question, do I believe this stuff? Now, now hear me, because we live in the South. Not do I just believe it. The Bible says even the demons believe and shudder. Who cares? Belief by itself doesn't matter. Do you believe it enough like the servants to take a step of faith? Do you believe it enough to take the next step, to walk with him? Do you believe it? Do you believe the Christmas story? Glenn Scrivener, one of my favorite people right now, says this. Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Atheists believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Choose your miracle. Don't tell me you don't believe. We all believe. The question is, what's the most reasonable thing to base your life on? Do you believe it? It's a reasonable belief. Do you believe it? Then I think you need to do this. You need to understand that the wine of life is running out. You see, the only prerequisite to receiving the gospel is understanding that you need the gospel. You, you, you understand that. If you still think that the wines of this life will satisfy you, you will never be filled with Jesus because Jesus only fills up empty jars. Do you need? Do you believe? And do you need? Those are the two questions that Christmas demands. What if today, what if today, knowing what you know, you did the only thing that Mary tells all of us to do? Just do what he says. C.S. Lewis, if you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. Jesus offers you something so amazing because he stood in the gap of eternity and did what you never could do. The Christmas story, it's about God coming down to give you something greater. I want to show you a real picture of this through a video, so why don't you watch this for a second and we'll wrap up. Heaven becomes so much more real when you lose a child or when you almost lose your life. You just think about things so differently, you realize how short life is. I kind of bought into the narrative when I was young that God is for people who aren't living their life right or have gone through something really, really difficult and need God. I was really, 
I feel like always looking ahead. Coming from a really close-knit family and parents that had such a great marriage, I think I was always looking for that in my life. After college, I ended up getting back together with my high school sweetheart. We ended up getting married very young at 21. We hit a lot of issues right off the bat and we ended up getting divorced. I was back at square one and I just felt so much shame. We actually met in kindergarten. Our families lived in neighborhoods right across the street from each other. It just started as this friendship of, wow, like we've known each other our whole life and then not too long after that started dating. We dated for four years before we started seriously talking about marriage and the biggest point of contention getting married was faith. I grew up in a religious house so I think from a young age you know I believed in God and I, I thought life was you worked hard you know you played by the right rules did the right things and you could go to this place called heaven. And then, you know, I know as we got closer to marriage, like I knew, I didn't really know why at the time, but I knew how important it was to have your faith be foundational to your marriage. And so I started, I guess, leaning in more and being more open to God and what he had in store for my life. My sister was visiting in Atlanta and she said, you know, there's this church five minutes away. Why don't you come with us? And I sat down. <coughs> And he started preaching this message, and I just will never forget it because it was called Three Words That Shift the World. He said, you are forgiven. I didn't know completely what was happening, but I just knew something inside of me had shifted so big and that I really believed that that was true and that that gift was available for me. And it just it changed me um, so profoundly. <laughs> We started praying about having a third child. Got pregnant right away with baby number three. First doctor's appointment was fine, all was well, and came back for a second doctor's appointment. We found out that um, the baby didn't have a heartbeat. 15 weeks, I ended up in the hospital, you know, obviously losing the baby, but on top of that, coming really close to not making it through myself. So I had to have an emergency procedure and a blood transfusion and came home the next day by the grace of God, just excited to see my kids and obviously still grieving, but just so grateful to be here for them. But it really sent me into a very difficult season where physically and mentally, I didn't feel like myself. The biggest takeaway for me from a lot of this was just trust, like a different level of trust in Him. There's so much hope that the end is good and that that changes the perspective on everything. It's really hard to be anxious when you just put it in his hands and know that he will make good out of it, even when it's when it seems so awful and, and hopeless. You know, it can be overwhelming to think, like, are we gonna be okay? Are we gonna pull out of this kind of tailspin? Is this gonna go away? Like, I felt like, man, we just gotta take this one day at a time and whatever the next week or month looks like, we're gonna be okay, he's gonna get us through this and there's gonna be something good that comes out of this. That's where my strength came from of knowing that, like man, like my role in this season is just to love her as best way I can and without having a faith with God, I don't know that I would have been as able to do that. You have to hope for, for something more. You have to believe that God will use it and that we're all connected and that there's a bigger plan and a bigger purpose and that your pain isn't wasted and he knows everything you've been through in your life. He loves you anyway. Three words. Three words. You are
Christmas story. God came down. Stepped off of his throne in heaven. Lived your perfect life. Walked your life in your place. The very first Christmas tree, God himself adorned it with his body. Was crucified on that day. The very last words he said are, Father, forgive them. He'd walk out of the grave three days later to unite you back to himself. And the end of the Bible says, one day God will come. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes and death shall be no more. He will be your God. You will be his people. And you will live with him forever and ever and ever. See, I knew it was a risk coming in here and trying to do a message that really didn't tell the Christmas story, but also knew that life is way too short not to tell you the truth of Christmas. God came down. You are forgiven. Some of you just need to rest in that this year. Allow the Lord to wash that over you that he's already done everything necessary to save you. And you can leave this room today worshiping a king who has already done it all. You are forgiven. Father, I pray that you would help us to see that that you would help us to walk with you, that you would help us to love you and serve you. God, thank you for Christmas. That it's not just a holiday. It's not just something we do. It's not gifts we give. It's the greatest gift we've received. God, you've made a way. You've descended down from heaven to bring us up. And we worship you. Thank you, King Jesus. Amen.